All right. If you can find your seat, we're going to continue on here this morning. One of my hobbies I'm excited about coming up is stand-up paddleboarding. You got to stay standing up, otherwise you're in the lake. One of my hobbies, I love it. Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Stephanie. I'm the lead pastor here at Mill City. I see a few new faces. It's good to see you. Thank you for joining us. I know it takes courage to come to a new community, and we hope that we can get connected with you. Um, I, I'm going to start out with another question this morning, and that is this. Have you ever had a conversation with a group of your friends about the first impressions that you had of each other? I do not recommend doing this. <laughs> this, is, this is not a good idea. Um, I remember being with some of my college friends not that long ago, and we were getting together, and we were, I think it was my idea, honestly. I think I was like, hey, let's talk about the first impressions we had of each other. And my good friend who I played hockey with in college, she jumps at the answer and she says, oh, I thought you were a huge dork when I met you. And I thought, whoa, hey, listen. And then I'm thinking she's going to have one of those things where she says, but, but now, you know, before she could say that, everyone else at the table was like, oh, yes, me too, huge dork, huge dork, very dorky, very dorky. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness. And then she says, which I was so grateful, she said, but then I got to know you, and, and I'm thinking, good, redemptive moment. She says, but then I got to know you, and I realized you were the kind of dork worth being friends with. <laughs> I, I'm, I kid you not. And, you know, I felt like my first reaction was to be defensive to that. But since I was in college for, you know, 20 years ago, I have come to terms with the fact that I am, in fact, dorky. And that is okay, and I just embrace it, you know? But I'm thinking back then, I did not know, you know? And she got that impression, and I couldn't believe it, really, everybody? But now, I, as I've accepted it, I look back on things like in high school when they would give you, like, the stay cool this summer, and it, they were talking about the weather, not about me, you know? So I just, I think I've, I think I've, I've come to terms with it. And in our culture, have you noticed that people talk a lot about how important the first impression is? You know, whether it's on a date or like a corporate gathering or a networking, your first impression really matters. And what I want to suggest is that it's not the most important. Your first impression is not the most impor important. What's most important is the lasting impression that you leave on the lives of the people around you. The lasting impression is what's most important. And so although my friends very much now know or are aware that I am a dork, I noticed that they have been with me all these years. We have stuck together all these years because the lasting impression that we gave of each other wasn't about any of that stuff, right? It was about being loyal and committed to each other and loving each other through the things in our life. And that has stood the test of time. The first impression didn't, but the lasting impression did. Here's the tension that I find in our lives of faith. So many people, when it comes to how they, they try to understand God, Many people don't go beyond their first impression of how they understand what God is like. And when I talk to people about this and I ask them about the impression that they have of God, what I'm sensing is that they're not going beyond that first impression. They say things like, I think God is distant and far away and, and doesn't care about what's going on in my life. I, I, I think God, my impression of God is that God is vengeful and always angry. Or I've heard people say, the impression that I have of God is that God is constantly disappointed in me. And I can never do enough to be able to, to be loved by God. These are the impressions that many people say they have of God. And I think these are these first impressions. And it's actually pretty helpful that God tells us exactly what lasting impression God hopes that we will have about God's character. 
This lasting impression is mentioned in one statement in Scripture, and it's repeated more than any other statement in Scripture. We don't have to wonder what God is like because God wants to give us a lasting impression of God's character. It's actually really clear. And I think that's such a gift to us. However, the story where we find God offering this lasting impression is, I'm going to say, a complicated one. Okay? It's a little bit tricky. I think you're going to see what I mean by this right away. And so I need to explain this story before we get to this exact description. Okay? So it's going to take a minute. I know we just had Easter and we were like, you know, he's alive, he's risen. And now I'm like deep dive into the Old Testament. So now's the time he's leaving. Now's the time. <laughs> I'm just telling you like we're going in the deep end of the Old Testament. We're here. Maybe he'll come back. You're welcome back in. So we're going to be looking at Exodus 31 through 34, all right? These are some, some thick chapters when it comes to the Old Testament, but also theologically. But I look at you, and you look very smart, very smart people here. So I think we can handle this. But it's important to me, I think. If we're going to understand what God's trying to share with us, I think we need to understand this context, and it's a tricky one. So if you have a Bible, Exodus 31 through 34, deep dive. So here's what is happening in the story. God, or Yahweh, as God is referred to in the Old Testament, Yahweh has chosen the people of Israel as the family that would represent or reflect God's character to the world. And they were going to be the people who were going to be blessed by God in order to be a blessing to the whole world. That's what's happening. They have been blessed by God to be a blessing to the whole world. However, in this moment in the story, I don't know that they were experiencing that blessing in a deep way. Why? Because they have been enslaved by the leader of Egypt that we know as a name, Pharaoh, for his name, right? So these are people who are supposed to be a blessing, blessed to be a blessing, but they are in, in captivity and they are being used. And God miraculously frees them by many different things, but one of the things is by parting the Red Sea. And maybe some of you heard the story, you've learned about it, and they were able to walk through to freedom, many other miracles along the way. And so now they're in this wilderness, they're outside of Egypt, they're in this wilderness, and things are a struggle from the beginning, okay? Things are a struggle from the beginning. They have a hard time trusting that God will meet their needs. Sounds like a them problem, not us, right? We don't struggle with that. I'm being sarcastic. Of course we struggle with trusting God. So they're struggling with that. When they are filled with the most anxiety, what they end up doing is coming to Moses, their leader, and um, his brother Aaron and sister Miriam, who are leading together, and he comes to them, and, he, and they, they come to them, and they basically say, we would rather go back to being enslaved in Egypt than be out here in this wilderness trying to trust God. Isn't it interesting what anxiety will do to you? <laughs> like, anxiety can overcome you in this way that they are willing to go back into captivity. But God continues to provide for them again and again and again. And God even wants to commit to them. In Scripture, we call this type of commitment a covenant, right? A covenant. And so this definition would be for covenant, a relationship between two partners who make binding promises to each other to work together and to reach a common goal. So God wants to commit to them in this whole idea of blessing the world. That's what they get to partner together to do. This is an amazing thing. The God of the universe wants to covenant with the people of Israel. This would have blown their minds. They would have understood covenants in their culture, these commitments. They would have understood that that's something that people do between groups of people. But the God of the universe wanting to covenant with you, that would have been amazing to them. 
In fact, most people in the ancient Near East or that kind of culture that we're talking about when Exodus was written and when it happened uh, had a polyistic worldview. So they believed in that there was multiple gods and that most of them were not good and angry. Angry gods. The gods were angry. And that was the understanding of, of the many different worldviews at that time. Their view of the gods in the culture of that day were at best the gods tolerated humans. At worst, the gods were going to eat the humans for a snack or obliterate them just for fun. That's the, the views that people had. So the fact that Yahweh is this God who sets them free from slavery, who wants to be committed to the promises that God's given to them, and then wants to covenant with them because God loves them, was mind-blowing to them. This is completely countercultural, completely unheard of. We don't see that kind of declaration about any sort of one of these gods. During this time in the wilderness, God invites Moses and occasionally other leaders to come up onto this mountain, Mount Sinai, to engage with God, to have these conversations with God. And what they're going to do is they're going to work out the details of this covenant commitment, the vows. They're going to work out these vows between the people. Seven times, Moses goes up to the mountain and back down again to communicate with God to the people. So let's set the scene for where we want to pick up the story. It's kind of like a movie where uh, they're switching back and forth between two locations at the same time to show what's happening simultaneously. That's what's happening in the scripture. So location number one is the top of the mountain where God is speaking to Moses. And then location number two is the bottom of the mountain where the people of Israel are responding to what's happening around them. So we pick up the story in chapter 31. God is finalizing the details of this covenant with Moses, kind of like writing the vows of the relationship, like think about the vows that are spoken out at a wedding. That's what's being written here. It's been 40 days since Moses went up onto the mountain with God. And, and you might be noticing um, seven times, 40 days, these are numbers that are common in scripture. We're not going to get into the depths of that today, but whenever you hear that, know that God is being very intentional. Always think when I hear seven, when I hear 40, that's an intentional on this part. So location number one, God's been speaking to Moses for 40 days, and this is what God says in Exodus 31, 18. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? So the vows have been inscribed by the finger of God onto this stone tablet. But then, boom, the scene changes from up in the mountain down to the bottom of the mountain, all right? down to location number two, and this is what happens in 32 verse one. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, 40 days, they gathered around Aaron, his brother, and said, come make us gods or God who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't even know what happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I mean, just think about that. Here's this little thing. He, these, <laughs> these are, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. After they sat down to eat and drink, they got up to indulge in revelry. All right? Listen to this. They sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now, maybe you've heard the phrase, get your mind out of the gutter. 
Nope, this is the gutter. This is the gutter. This is not a PG party that's happening when we understand it in the context of Scripture here in the Hebrew. Let's just say that, 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 that the revelry was not PG, and that's what we'll leave it at that. Something that's also hard for us to notice in English that I discovered in a deep way when I was looking into the Hebrew and to the commentaries is that the people aren't making the golden calf so that they can have a different God to worship, like golden calf God, right? This is not what they're doing. And I just think this picture is hilarious. How many earrings did they think they had? Like, there's no way it's that big. I'm like, what? So whatever. We don't know what size it was, but it's not like they were like, we want golden calf God. Like, that's not what the Hebrew suggests. When I was digging into the commentaries, they're actually making this graven image to represent Yahweh. The golden calf is not a new God, but a physical representation of Yahweh because they don't have Moses to be their representative because they don't know where he went, right, to be their mediator. And I guess Aaron wasn't good enough, probably too dorky. So he wasn't good. So they were like, we need something, we need this thing to represent God. And when you look deeper, we see the people aren't guilty of, when we think of the Ten Commandments, they're not guilty of the first commandment, which is you should have no other gods before me. What they've broken here is the second commandment. You shall not make any graven images or idols. It's not that after 40 days they just wanted to find a new God. It's that they couldn't wait even 40 days before they had to have God on their own terms. That's what happened. I'm telling you, I had never understood it that way. I checked multiple commentaries, and I'm going, this changes a lot for me. I felt really convicted, and here's why. I have never been tempted to gather my jewelry together to make a little animal. That's never been a temptation for me, personally. But many days, I feel the desire to relate to God on my own terms and not God's. Many days, I want God to work on my timetable to fix the things that I want God to fix and when I want God to fix them and the way that I want God to fix them. There's so many days when I just want to be able to understand the plan. I don't want to have to deal with uncertainty. If God could just give me certainty, then I would trust God which is not trust, obviously. They didn't make a golden calf to represent a new God. They did it to have God on their own terms, similar to the ways that these other nations had fashioned a God. However, it's an image of an animal. This is like a fifth day creation, not even a sixth. This is, this is really disrespectful, okay? That they're making this image to stand in the gap as Yahweh, but he literally told them not to do that. And then they make this animal that's not even an, something that would be honored. And then to party like you don't care how offensive that is to Yahweh. The people here, right, are, are indulging in revelry like we spoke about earlier. But then the scene switches really quick. From the gutter where they're indulging in revelry up to the mountaintop where God is speaking to Moses. Moses has no idea what's happening down the mountain. But God does. <laughs> and so this is what happens when we pick it up in verse 7. Then the Lord says to Moses, Go down because your people, whom you brought up, I love that, your, not my, your people, you need to go down and deal with your people. It's like when people are like, Your child, you need to go deal with your child. So you, then go down because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them. They have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You think about God being like a cat, a, a cat an animal, a and they have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Like, I just did that, but the I have seen these people, the Lord says to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now, 
Leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them, and then I will make you into a great nation. So leave me alone. I'm going to go pout about how angry I am about this, and then we'll start over with you, Moses. Whoa. Was I not kidding when I said it's complicated where this passage is happening? Do you see why I said this is tricky? It's tough for us to read that God is angry, isn't it? It is for me. I'll just admit that. That's really tough for me. We have seen so many, I think there's a lot of reasons, but we have seen so many humans that are abusive, that have this kind of tyrannical and just offensive, abusive, angry leadership. So it makes sense, I think, why alarms would go off in our mind when we're picturing a leader who's angry. But this is not a broken and sinful human leader. This is God who just miraculously saved thousands of people. And instead of love and appreciation, they start partying exactly how God asked them not to. They intentionally disrespect God. It's kind of like this. Okay, imagine this. Whether you're married or not, imagine it's your wedding day, you're up there, you got the vows, and the person you're getting married to starts breaking the vows right there in front of everybody during the ceremony. You tell me that would not make you angry. Any normal human would be angry about that. Why? Because you care about this relationship. You wouldn't be getting married to this person if you didn't care. And if they're going to break the vows before we even got started, that would make anybody angry. So even though Moses is shocked, what does he do? He advocates for the people. He doesn't let God sit and pout in God's anger. In fact, and, and I, you know, God knew Moses would do this, but Moses advocates. Moses says, please forgive them, please. And right there in verse 14, it says, then the Lord relented which could also be translated as, then the Lord had compassion on the people. Then the Lord had compassion. Yes, God was angry. Uh, I, I think God still gets angry, specifically at injustice. When humans hurt themselves and other people, God is angry about that. I, I know this is challenging, but let me just give, some, give you something to consider. Is a God that is not angry, I mean, if it, let's put it this way. Try to consider that a God that isn't angry at injustice wouldn't be a God that we'd want to follow. Because as people made in the image of God, injustice should make us angry too. And so this is something I think we would hope for from God, yet it's challenging. And we're going to talk more about that in this series as we talk about what God is like. So back to the story. Remember, we're in this story just to get to the point of how God wants us to talk, to know God's character, okay? But we'll get there. Did I not say deep dive? Like we are in, you know, 10 feet of, of the deep end of the pool. Back to the story, Moses comes down, he slams the, the stone tablets on the ground. These words that are written by the finger of God are now strewn all over the place in little bits. And yes, Moses is angry because he's thinking like, you guys, I was up there representing you and you're down here in the gutter with the revelry, right? He's mad. But it's important for us to note that, that it's not just Moses having a temper tantrum and that's why he does this. The vows of the covenant are written on these tablets and in the ancient world, if a covenant from humans by humans was broken, whatever they were written on would be destroyed. They didn't even get to the full commitment and they'd already broken it. Again, it's like the wedding ceremony is happening, but the covenant has already been broken, and so Moses symbolically slams them down and, and destroys them. Now, there's a lot that happens in this story that I'm not going to get into today, but we're going to send out resources every Monday because I'm really hoping that we can really together take a deep dive on this. And so if you want to go deeper, that will come tomorrow. But what we see in these next few chapters is this. Moses five times pleads with God to forgive the people. 
Five different times Moses advocates or intercedes is another word with God for the people. Remember, I'm telling you all this because this story gets to this critical moment where God clearly states the lasting impression God wants the people to have of God's character. It's in the midst of this messy story. So we're almost there. We get to the fifth appeal, and Moses gives, comes to God and, and is appealing on behalf of the people to give them another chance to forgive them. And this is what God says, and I want you to listen really closely in Exodus 34, 10. This is what God says. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. I mean, it's not there, but again, I'm going to try again. I'm making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. What an incredible promise. The wedding is back on. Right? The wedding is back on, and God commits to people, even in the midst of their worst, God's willing to go back into this relationship with them. Now, right before God declares this, you know, the wedding's back on, we see this description of exactly God's character. What is God like? This is what we see. Verse 34, I'll read verse 5 and 6. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, with Moses, and proclaimed his name, the Lord, or Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. What is God like? God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger or patient, abounding in loyal love and is faithful. That's the lasting impression that God wants us to have about God's character. That's what we see quoted and referenced all throughout Scripture more than anything else. In Deuteronomy, in Micah, in Jonah, multiple times in the Psalms, in uh, the Gospel of John, we see these references back to this moment in the middle of this messy story when God still chooses to say, this is what I'm like. And this is what I meant when I said we don't have to wonder what God is like because God told us. And God wants to give us a lasting impression of the character of God. It's repeated again and again. And these descriptions of God's character are beautiful, aren't they? Just the idea of God just overflowing with loyal love. This idea of being gracious and compassionate, a God that's so deeply moved. But here's the problem. The trickiness is not quite over, all right? We're still in the deep end. Uh, I want to actually pause, and I'm going to invite you to watch a video from the Bible Project. We're going to have these videos every week. I'm super grateful for the work that they've done. This is called a visual commentary. And so you'll see them summarize the story and then get deep into the Hebrew. And I think you're all smart enough to go with this. So watch this video and then we'll unpack it just a little bit more. The Bible is a collection of many ancient Israelite scrolls. And together, they're telling one unified story. Now, if you look at the second scroll, Exodus, you'll find two important sentences. They're actually so important that they're referenced and requoted over 20 more times within the Bible itself. It must be important. What does it say? Yahweh, Yahweh, that's God's name, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. I can see why it's repeated so often. These attributes of God are really lovely. And the statement goes on. 
He maintains loyal love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he won't declare innocent the guilty. He will bring the iniquities of the fathers upon the children and grandchildren to the third and the fourth. Okay, hold on. This last part takes a bit of a turn. We're first talking about God's love, and suddenly it's about his judgment on grandkids. So is God merciful or vengeful? Yeah, great question. Let's see these words in a larger context by looking at something important in Genesis, the first scroll of the Bible. There, God chooses one family, the Israelites, from among the nations, and he promises that he's going to rescue the whole world through this family somehow. And Genesis ends with the family of Abraham in Egypt. Then the book of Exodus begins, and this book has two large movements. Right, okay, so this first movement of Exodus, God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt. And in the second movement, God leads them to Mount Sinai, where they camp out for a year. And God invites this whole nation into a partnership called a covenant, so that they can be shaped by his values and character. And represent God to all the other nations. Exactly. Now this whole Mount Sinai movement in Exodus can be broken up into four literary units. First, there's the actual ceremony where the Israelites agree to be God's partners. And God sets up the terms of the relationship, starting with the 10 commandments. The first two are, don't give your allegiance to other gods and don't make any idol images of God. Seems simple enough. After that, God shows Moses detailed blueprints for building this sacred home so that God can come and live among them. All right, and then comes a really long narrative about the building of that sacred home. But you missed something. Right in between these sections is the story that has our description about God's character. The story begins with Moses going up on the mountain, writing down the partner agreement, as the Israelites are at the base of the mountain, violating the first two commands. That's ridiculous. They're breaking the covenant vows while the ceremony is still going on. Yes. And so God is hurt and angry, and he warns Moses that this betrayal will keep on happening. God is ready to call it quits. But what about his promise to rescue the world through them? Yeah, exactly. This is what Moses brings up. And so what is God going to do? Should he end the partnership, which would be fair? Or will he be faithful to his promise to Abraham and show them mercy? Yeah, exactly. Now, look back at the words that we began with, and you'll see they're about this very tension between God's mercy and his justice. Okay, so the statement opens like this. A God compassionate and gracious. In Hebrew, this line has three words that rhyme. El Rachum Dachanun. And the line, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness, matches the first, as it also has three Hebrew words, Rav Chesed Ve'emet. Each of those lines have two attributes of God, and they surround a fifth attribute, that God is slow to anger. Right. Now, that's the first half of this description of God. Then comes the second half. God maintains loyal love for thousands. And how is he going to remain loyal to people who keep rebelling against him? by forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Uh, but God's forgiveness doesn't mean people can just do whatever they want. Right. God's mercy is balanced in what follows. Yet he won't declare innocent the guilty. He'll bring the iniquities of the fathers upon the children and grandchildren to the third and the fourth. The third and the fourth what? 
Well, it's referring to generations of people who repeat their ancestors' rebellion against God. They'll get what they deserve. But notice, this small number of generations contrasts that massive number up above. God's loyal love to thousands. Right. And then check this out. God's forgiveness of iniquity in this line is contrasted with his justice on iniquity in this line. Okay, and all those lines are surrounding a central line here about God's justice. He will not declare innocent the guilty. So while God is slow to anger, he is also just. Right. This is the tension that these two sentences are exploring. How does a faithful and loyal God deal with such a rebellious people? This is the challenge God faces in this story, and it's the same challenge he faces in the whole biblical story as he works to rescue the world through this family. With that in mind, we can take a closer look at these five attributes that God declares about himself to Moses. A God compassionate, and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. And we'll see how each one leads us deeper into the character of God and into the story of the Bible. All right, let's put these six and seven up on the screen for a second. I think we can all agree there's some tension that they described, right? There's some tension, this idea of almost like there's a, a balance there. But I just want to emphasize that important point that they made. Verse seven, about the sins of generations, does not mean I, that God is going to punish an innocent child or grandchild for the sins of their parents. I would say that that's not a, a good interpretation of that. This verse does mean that God is not just going to be okay with every generation choosing to commit the same evil and injustice when they know better than that. They can't just be like, well, I learned it from my parents. Whoops. Do you see what God's saying here? We can't just blame somebody else for why when God reveals to us the ways God wants to change our hearts. If we don't want that forgiveness, that's not what God's going to offer. But I don't think that it would be accurate to say that somebody who's innocent is going to be held responsible. The way in which this Hebrew writing is not suggesting that. Here's what I hope you can take away from this, even though we'll talk more about this as we go. God loves us too much not to care when we hurt each other or even ourselves and the image of God within us. God loves us too much for that. God loves us too much to just say, well, I guess they're hurting each other or just totally degrading the image of God I made them in. No. The key takeaway is that in the ancient Near East, so when people were first hearing these words of Moses, when they were first reading the Torah, they would not have thought about the two generations and thought, well, were they innocent or guilty? What they would have thought is, whoa, three or four is such a small number compared to that massive number of thousands. That is a contrast. Wow, God must be the most absolutely compassionate, merciful, loving, gracious, patient God I have ever heard of. That's what they would have been thinking. And then they probably would have thought, man, all the other gods I've heard of hate people. People are just in the way. They devour them. They smite them. But this true God, Yahweh, is forgiving and loving? This true God wants things to be just and wants the wrong things to be made right, but will forgive us when we ask if we fail to live justly? They would have thought that was amazing. At that time, that would have been the most profound thing a human could imagine hearing about God. And I hope that that's something that's profound to us today. As we go through these next six weeks, we're going to look at each of these attributes of God together. And when we ask this question, what is God like? I hope that we'll be able to answer, 
Well, we don't have to wonder what God is like because God told us. God wants to give us a lasting impression of the character of God. God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger or patient, is full of loyal love, and God is faithful. How do we know that that is truly God's character? You could say, well, because it's in the Bible a lot. Yeah, okay. How do we know that that's truly God's character? The way that we most clearly see that this is the true character of God is because Jesus is the incarnation of this description. Think about that in, in, his, in the stories about Jesus. Jesus is compassion and grace and patience and love and faithfulness personified. Scholars will often say something like this, Jesus is the new Moses. Through Moses, God set the people free from slavery in Egypt, but Jesus sets people free from all the sin and brokenness in the world. You see that Jesus is the new Moses. Moses parted the Red Sea. Jesus doesn't need to part any sea. He just walks right on top of it, right? Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he sat down to receive these words from God to bring to the people. Jesus sits on the side of a mountain and shares these words of love as he fulfills the law in what we now call the Sermon on the Mount. Moses made a covenant with God established by the blood of bulls and animals and goats. Jesus establishes a new covenant, an everlasting covenant with his own blood by conquering sin and death, and he came back from the grave. Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the incarnation of Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Jesus is compassion, grace, patience, love, and faithfulness personified. Now, before we end, I just want to bring up one final tension. I think it's a big one. It's actually a tension I hope we're going to take with us for the next five weeks, okay? Here at Mill City, we often talk about how we want to be Jesus-centered people. That means we want to be people who are living out the words and the works and the ways of Jesus. That means we're people who want to take on the character of Jesus that we just are talking about here, right? When we follow Jesus, our character should also reflect compassion and grace and patience and love and faithfulness. So here's the tension that we need to face right now. That is not how people tend to see us, is it? The tension is that that's not what people see. You don't hear people saying, you know, those Christians, so patient. Right? You don't see people saying, man, when I think about the church in America, compassionate, graceful, and forgiving. That is not what comes to mind, is it? We have to face the reality that the first impression that people sometimes have of Christians in our culture is not compassion, is not grace or patience or love or faithfulness. And I'm not sure what we can do about the first impression, but here's what I think. I think we've got a chance with the lasting impression. I think we have a chance in our actual relationships with the people we spend time with, who we work with, our neighbors, our family, our friends, to be people who reflect and show the character of Jesus to them and how we relate to them and how we relate to each other. I think that we have a chance to leave a lasting impression of Jesus on people. And as we walk through each of these character traits over these next few weeks, here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to say, here's three ways that you can be more compassionate. Go with God. We're not going to do that. We're not going to say, here's three ways that you can be more forgiving or more patient. And I'll tell you this, it's tempting to do that because that would sound really nice in a sermon. But honestly, it's not going to work. Trying harder is not going to work. I know this firsthand. It's just not going to work. This week I was accused of something that wasn't true. It was not anybody here, okay? But I was accused of something. It wasn't true. And actually it wasn't even about me. That's like the worst for my personality. I'm like, this isn't even about me, right? 
Don't act like nobody else is like that. Come on. <laughs> like, you know, it was the worst. And I just, I wanted so badly to be defensive. Uh, it was over email. So it's like one of those things where you're like, I know I should not respond to this right now. That's actually a good practice, right? It's just the worst. And then I realized, though, I realized, like, I have to figure out how to offer grace and forgiveness. But I couldn't just wish myself to be more graceful. Like, I couldn't just be like, you know, come on, let's do this. Let's be forgiving. I couldn't do it. The only way that we're going to become more forgiving is by receiving the forgiveness that God has for us. The only way that we're going to become more compassionate and reflect God's compassion is by receiving the compassion that God has for us. The only way that we're going to become more loving and reflect God's love is by receiving the love that God has for us. And so I had to actually not respond to that email. I had to stop and to take time and to receive God's grace for me. I had to, to carve that time out and receive that a couple times, to be honest. And that was how I was able to have grace for the people that accused me. To be able to have compassion for them and to see maybe the way that they were experiencing something. And that it wasn't about me. It was about the compassion that God had for them. But I had to see that God had compassion for me first. So here's what I want to invite us into. It's kind of bold. I want to invite us to just be in a season here of receiving from God in a deeper way. Receiving God's compassion and grace and patience and love and faithfulness. Over these next five weeks, I want to invite you to commit to boldly and courageously open your mind and your heart to how God might want to offer and give you these things so you can receive them in order to reflect them. Because that's the way it goes. We receive from God if we have any chance of reflecting God's character to the people around us. And this is not just about changing our minds and hearts. It's something that we have to put into practice. We have to put it into practice receiving from God. That's not going to be our default. And one of the ways we can do that is through spiritual practices. And so as a pastoral team, we really want to equip you to be able to really dig deep into this and to be able to receive from Jesus in this season. So every Monday, we're going to send out an email that has a lot of going deeper resources, has some questions you can do with other people in your life, has a spiritual practice that you can do ideally with other people. And then every Wednesday here at the church from 6.30 to 8, we're going to have a gathering for anybody who wants to come, all ages. We're calling it Praxis Gatherings. Praxis means practice. We're going to put it into practice together. So you don't have to do that with us, but you're invited to come. And you can see more about it on our website. But here's what I want to do. As the band comes up, I just want us to start right now. Do a very short practice of receiving these character traits of God in our life if we're going to reflect them. It doesn't have to be something super fancy, all right? And then we're going to do two practices we always do, communion and worship. Two spiritual practices that help shape us. Because just trying harder is not going to shape us long term in the ways that we hope to. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a prayer, and uh, these little cards are going to be in these baskets here and up in the communion table, so you can take it with you, and I have the prayer written on it that we're about to do, okay? And so if you feel comfortable, I'm just going to guide you through this prayer, and then we'll go into our time of worship, all right? So if you feel comfortable, you can close your eyes, or you can keep them open, but what I want you to do is put your hands in front of you and hold them together tightly, and I want to imagine together the ways that we want to just try harder <laughs> to be better to do better. Imagine that pressure that we put on ourselves, that, that tightly gripped pressure. And then we pray this prayer over us. Jesus, knowing that simply working harder is not going to lead to lasting formation of my heart, I choose to commit to a season of receiving. As you think about this idea of a season of receiving, I invite you to slowly open your hands 
just in a posture of receiving from God. We might have to do this every day or multiple times a day. We let go of trying harder and we put ourselves in a posture of receiving. And this is the prayer. Help me, Jesus, to open my heart to the compassion, the grace, the patience, the love, and the faithfulness that you want to offer to me. Thank you for showing us through your death and resurrection how limitless your love is for us. Amen.